There's no place like home, but what makes a house a home? Is there even a difference? Well, we think so. See, home isn't exactly a place. It's an idea. It's a story about who we are and how we live. A house, on the other hand, is a physical object. It's the vessel that holds the flesh and bones of a home. But the soul is made from what happens inside that house. Some we can't see, like celebrations and traditions, and others we can, like scuff marks on the stairs or layers of paint on the door, as the torch of one family is passed to another. The soul marks the history of the home, and it evolves over time. Houses tell stories. They're evidence of domestic life of earlier generations and how spaces were designed to reflect their daily needs. The 2019 Census Bureau reported that there are nearly 150 million houses in America, and of those, typically about 300,000 are demolished each year. Now, some are uninhabitable, while others are obsolete, simply out of date with today's living standards. Oftentimes, owners and developers find it easier to tear them down and start over, rather than restore them. But when we demolish a house, particularly an old house, we lose crucial traces of the past. My family lives in an old house that was designed and built by the Swedish-born artist and sculptor Charles Hogg. It's a quirky, one-of-a-kind, colorful Scandinavian farmhouse that was built in 1919 on what was then considered the wrong side of the tracks. Over a hundred years later, there are no right or wrong sides, but our house stands in stark contrast to the larger, newer homes that flank either side of us. Could a house be a placeholder in the community to remember another time, highlighting how the new and old impact one another? Does a community benefit from its preservation? And what happens to an empty, abandoned house? Do the memories stay, or do they just fade away over time? For one couple, the quest for a little extra space turned into an improbable journey that centers around the tucked-away history of a small house, a captain, and a very special young girl. It's called The Jenny Effect, and our story starts here. From the studios of Home Productions, I'm Brooke Bechtold, and this is Impactually. We'd be all right if the wind was in our sails. We'd be all right if the wind was in our sails. We'd be all right if the wind was in our sails. And we'll all hang on behind. Located on Virginia's eastern coast of the Delmarva Peninsula and facing the Atlantic Ocean are the Chicateague and Assateague Islands. Chicateague links the mainland to Assateague, which is an undeveloped 37-mile barrier island. Assateague is probably best known as a wildlife refuge for feral ponies. Legend has it that their domesticated ancestors were survivors of a Spanish galleon that shipwrecked along the coast. But some historians believe it's more likely that some late 18th century mainland owners brought their horses to the barrier islands to avoid fencing laws and taxation. But back on Chicateague, it was the recent rediscovery of a very small wooden house that helped historians understand another important piece of American history. Louisa Flanningham and her family visited Chicateague and Assateague when she was a young girl growing up near Washington, D.C. A passion for acting and the stage, Louisa moved to New York City as a young woman. During a 1985 production of Bob Fosse's Pippin, she met her future husband, Paul. 
Can you guys introduce yourselves to us? Um, well, let's see. Uh, I was born originally in South Carolina, raised outside of Washington, D.C., moved to New York in uh, 1968 in the theater. I had started as a dancer. Uh, and then they figured out I could also sing. And um, and over the course of these years also, I've begun doing more plays. And I'm, I'm Paul Brzezowski. I grew up in Chicago, back mm. at the stockyards behind a tavern. And I was going to St. Lawrence High School. And it was an all-boys school on the southwest side of Chicago. And they needed boys for an all-girls school, Lourdes High School, for a production of Carousel. And my friends were saying, oh, you should come, you should come. And they dragged me, literally dragged me into the stage door there. And I saw the girls and I figured, okay, this is for me. This is where I want to be. <laughs> Louise and I, we've been professional actors over 100 years between yeah. us. In 2002, Paul and Louisa were between acting jobs when they decided to travel from their home in New Jersey to spend a long weekend on Chicoteague, where on a whim, they bought a second home. So we loved it. And a few years later, we decided "Mm," it was a very tiny house, a very old house built 1890, Um, didn't have a lot of room. We had a shed, but it wasn't so big. So we decided we needed another shed. A friend mentioned a small neglected building with some historic value was up for sale on the other side of this charming mile-and-a-half wide island, and it caught their attention. That's where the Captain Timothy Hill house starts. The exterior appeared ordinary enough. It was an old wood-sided building, big enough for their bikes and a few other garage items. But this was no ordinary shed. We bought this old beat-up little thing, and we said, oh, this is cool. We'll move it to our our, our house, you know, on our mm-hmm. land. It was clabbered over on the outside with wood, you know, like a siding. And when we crawled in, we saw that it was logs. Log cabins were common house structures built by European settlers from the mid-17th century through the 1800s. Discovering logs under the siding was a clear sign This wasn't just a 20th century building in disrepair. It was significant. It was built probably 1790, 1800, and we brought down two people from uh, historic architects from Williamsburg. They went through the house. They came out after three hours of looking, not talking to each other. We thought they didn't like each other, but they didn't want to influence each other. And they said, you have something very special here. This is the oldest house on Chincoteague. And uh, in in fact, in 1832, there were 26 homes on Chincoteague. This is the last survivor of those first 26 homes. And this is one of only two houses still standing in the state of Virginia that was built to have a wooden chimney. The type of chimneys most of us know today are masonry chimneys that are built from stone or brick and mortar and lined with a clay flue. In the 18th and 19th centuries, northern colonists molded bricks from readily available clay mixed with sand or shale, but Chicoteague was barren of clay or native stones. Using the resources they had, specifically an abundance of trees, early settlers built their houses with wooden fireplaces. Crushed oyster and clamshells were used to create a mortar to hold the logs together and line the firebox and flue. There was also a makeshift latch and pulley system so that the chimney itself could be detached quickly and then pulled away in the event of a fire, keeping the main part of the house safe. 
Paul and Louisa now owned a piece of Virginia history, and their first priority was to relocate it. We interviewed three movers. Two said, we'll take it apart and put it back together on your property. It'll be cheaper. And the third mover said, no, you can't do that. Because once you do that, the people, the men who built this log house, it's not, their hands wouldn't be on it. So we decided it was more expensive, but we move it in one piece to our uh, our site on our property. And if we had had followed the cheaper version of taking it apart and then re- reestablishing it, we never would have been listed on the um, uh, landmarks register for Virginia uh, and the National, National Register of Historic Places. But as they were getting ready to move it, something strange happened in front of Louisa. Right before we were about to move it, one of the pieces of clabber fell down right in front of her. And what did you see? I, I saw sailing ships carved into the piece of wood. And I was there with our, our logsmith. And we both of us just went, what the world? And as we took the clabber off to get down to the logs to work on them and whatever, we found more and more carvings. You know, there and probably about 30, 35. We knew about old houses. We loved old houses and all of this stuff, but we're not experts in something like that. With the help of several historic restoration specialists, including archaeologists, carpenters, masons, and architects, they successfully moved and restored this important piece of local and national history back to its original rustic glory. But the mystery of the falling clabbered and the hand behind those ship carvings remained unanswered. More on that later. What makes the Captain Timothy Hill House so special is that it represents a style of architecture that speaks directly to the beginnings of our nation. Scandinavians who sailed across the Atlantic and up the Delaware Bay in the early 1600s were the first to bring this log cabin building technique to the New World. Often, large families would live in these single-pen houses, as they were called, They were designed with one room down and a sleeping loft up connected by a ladder or a staircase. All had a fireplace for heating and cooking, and most had just one door and one window. In addition to the average 16 by 16 indoor living quarters, there were frequently front and back porches added for extra space. It was a typical home layout for colonists along the Mid-Atlantic and the South. They're extremely rare today because few survive intact. Spending countless time, energy, and dollars on what looks to us like a tiny storage space, one might ask, well, why bother? After all, isn't it just a shed? Conservationists argue that when a house is demolished, more than just the structure is lost. Restoration and preservation provide communities with important cultural, aesthetic, and social connections to their past. Restoration reduces waste as well as the carbon footprint that new construction adds. According to the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning, demolition and new construction now account for 25% of the solid waste that ends up in U.S. landfills each year. Place Economics, a firm that studies the economic impacts of historic preservation, maintains that historic preservation also promotes economic vitality. Many cities around the country rely on this to play a pivotal role by maintaining the assets that make them distinct from everyone else and contribute to a community's sense of value, identity, and place. Think about it. 
what would Boston be like without the Old South Meeting House where the Boston Tea Party was organized? Or can you imagine, even for a minute, Manhattan without Grand Central Station or Radio City Music Hall? These buildings are considered among the most important structures in American history in terms of architecture, art, and culture. They were all once threatened by the wrecking ball to make way for alternate uses. Were it not for forward-thinking conservationists, these iconic landmarks wouldn't exist today. Historic preservation is the practice of thoughtfully managing historic resources. We spoke with Professor Ted Karamansky, Director of the Historic Preservation Graduate Program at Loyola University in Chicago, and asked him about the benefits of preservation from both the social and economic perspectives. The National Trust for Historic Preservation has done studies that demonstrate that neighborhoods that preserve historic properties uh, generally see a rise in property values. Uh, And so that is uh, a very useful uh, economic incentive uh, for communities to, to make an effort Uh, to save historic structures. The educational benefits are also, I think that's again an obvious one in the sense that so many communities, uh, when they have, if they have an historic house, it's often then used by the local historical society uh, as an historic house museum uh, and becomes a resource then for educating children in the community and sometimes can be a driver for tourism, uh, depending on the nature of the of the communities. In response to the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, the United States government founded the National Historic Landmarks Program, which dictates which of the nation's historic properties are considered worthy for preservation. The program has leveraged more than $45 billion in federal preservation tax credits through private investment and grants programs, And now, nearly every county within the United States has at least one listing on the National Register. In addition to the national level, each state and many local municipalities have their own historic registry, designation, or preservation programs meant to offer benefits and incentives to projects just like the Hill House. Here again is Dr. Karamansky. You know, why should we save historic buildings? Why should communities do this? to be a real community, uh, to go ahead and um, live in a place that has a sense of place. So many uh, areas in the United States are designed in a cookie cutter manner. There's the old song from the 1960s, little boxes on a hillside, places that could be anywhere in America a subdivision in North Carolina looking exactly like a suburb subdivision in Naperville, Illinois. And why do those places look like that? Well, there's a strong utilitarian base for it. It has to do with the efficiency of construction, also in providing people with some of the types of housing that they, that they do desire. But an historic preservation can bring that element of uniqueness to a community. And when so many of us as Americans move around from one place to the next, when you come into a community and you can see demonstrated in a tangible way its unique qualities, the things that ties that tie it uh, to the past, uh, you can 
feel that you're not just in anywhere America, but you're in a place that has a special quality. And, you know, we, we want us as neighbors to cooperate with each other, to make a commitment to making our communities better. And historic preservation as a process is something that facilitates that. We'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Impactually. The team at Hum Productions works hard to leverage our episodes with the incredible and inspiring impact of our guests. If you want to support the show and be more in the know of what's coming up with Impactually, you're invited to support us on Patreon. Whether it's branded swag, earning producer-level credits, gaining access to scripts, or learning what's happening behind the scenes, you can get those and more if you go to patreon.com forward slash impactually. That's patreon.com forward slash impactually. Paul and Louisa's house was once owned by Captain Timothy Hill Sr. According to the 1830 census, he was born in Maine, but identified himself as a sailor from New York. It's rumored that sometime before 1822, he shipwrecked off the coast of Assateague and made his way to Chicoteague where he bought his first piece of property. He was likely not the original owner of the house, as the experts date it closer to the late 1700s. There's a monogram, E.L., carved into the top log, now covered by a soffit, and they believe that monogram may belong to Ebenezer Lewis, a landowner on the island at the time. Could Ebenezer have been the hand behind those dozens of ship carvings? Well, it's plausible, since the images accurately convey details and proportions of schooners and sloops, sailing vessels common in the 18th and 19th century. But another clue, that they're carved into the logs at a much lower height, leads some to guess that they may be the handiwork of a 12- or 13-year-old child. A descendant, and there are still many in the area, believes that Captain Timothy Hill Sr. most likely worked the oyster trade. There are stories circulating that he may have also been a privateer or a pirate, but there are no tangible records to confirm that. The captain and his wife, Rebecca, raised their seven children in this tiny home near the ocean. Their eldest, Timothy Jr., followed in his father's footsteps and became one of the wealthiest oyster traders up and down the eastern seaboard. His goods went as far north as New York City, and the newspapers called them patriotic Chincoteague oysters because they came from the half of Virginia that was loyal to the Union Army during the Civil War. He and his wife, Sapora built a larger house next to his parents, where they raised their 11 children, one of whom was a girl named Jenny. I want to circle back to something that Louisa said, that you were standing outside and the board fell very serendipitously. Who do you think yanked that board off just so that you would see it? We, we actually know we who have, it is. We, we have, know who it is. We, know, we have a, a very special uh, little guardian angel. And, so you can um, say her name. And her name is Jenny, Jenny. Emma Virginia Hill. She was 13 years old. Paul and Louisa have a charcoal etching of Jenny, and they offered to show it to me. Would you like to see her picture? 
I would love to see her picture. This was given to us by a member of the family and okay. it hung in the big house. That's Jenny. That's Jenny. She was beautiful. Emma Virginia Hill, or Jenny, was born to Timothy Jr. and Sephora in 1872. She was described by an island journalist as, quote, a perfect blonde of bright and happy disposition who was in every sense the pet of the entire family, the most loving and obedient of them all. But there was a secret on the farm that no one knew about. A 20-year-old boy by the name of Tom Freeman worked for the Hills as a farmhand. Tom had fallen in love with the 13-year-old Jenny, but her parents would not allow them to court. On the morning of June 18, 1885, Jenny and Sephora left the house to visit the dressmaker. As they were making their way down the road, they saw Tom and he was blocking their path. He approached Sephora asking, as he had done before, to court her daughter. The mother said no, so he put away the horse that he was plowing the field with. He laid out his blue suit in his room. He put some letters on his blue suit. He confronted the mother again. Mother said no. He shot the mother twice. The first one glanced off her bonnet. The second one lodged in her neck. Then he shot Jenny twice and retreated to the big house and put the gun to his head and took his own life in the kitchen. Zipporah survived, but Jenny did not. She died the next morning. After Jenny was murdered, they went up to Tom's room and read one of the letters that he had left on his blue suit. Dear Sir, to all the people in the world, I'll tell you that I died for love. I'm going to kill myself on account of Jenny Hill. We have been courting for about eight months, and this is the last. I will die. I will kill my lover. So goodbye to all. And to everybody, this is my request to be buried alongside her. Tom was not buried with Jenny, but rather in a pauper's grave. A tragic story of secret romance and young love that undoubtedly changed the lives of the Hill family and perhaps that of Paul and Louisa as well. Could Jenny have been behind the falling clapboard that revealed the history of this tiny house? I mean, too many... coincidences, you know, and and there really are no coincidences. So I keep thinking about that um, because we have a lot of them and we just call it the Jenny effect. Jenny's grandparents' cabin has made a big impact on Chicatigue. Not only does it operate as a popular seasonal museum, but it's encouraged downtown development and sparked interest by locals to preserve their own piece of island history. Remarkably, it was owned or occupied by a Hill family member until 1954. I asked about their relationship with the Hill descendants today. It's been a really interesting journey. All small towns, you know, have their population kind of sticks together. We're not born here. We're kind of separated from the born here. But slowly but surely, as we've kind of gotten to know the Hill family and other people. When people come by and see the house, they talk to us and the community has really welcomed us. And they really are more and more, we get comments about, we're so glad you did this. We're so appreciate what we, so they're starting to really, really appreciate what we did 
and have done and we continue to do. And what's sad is that so many times you run run into people who say, yeah, there's there's all kinds of stuff in that, you know, my mom's house and everything and up in the attic. And I just threw it away. And so now maybe people won't throw it away so much. And I think now that we've done it, other Shinkatigas, real Shinkatigas are looking at their own history. Rather than tearing things down, they're trying to start restoring places. And so we feel we've had a great handle in that. And even our downtown, they're calling it a historic district now. So it's we feel really good about that. So you are part of the National Registry and you're part of the Virginia Landmarks Landmarks Registry. So what do those organizations do for you with a house that's so special? Well, the one thing they did for us, they gave us tax credits. So we paid a lot of money for this restoration. Mm -hmm. But between the state and the federal, we got 45% back of everything we spent on that house. That encourages people like us and people who want to save something. Please, you can do it. You can get those tax credits. God bless the government for that reason. And you can get it and you can be like us and help save these structures. Would you guys do this again? Good question. Do it again? Good question. Good question. What do you, would you? Oh, yeah. I think I, I, I would. Yeah. We always call it our unexpected journey because you never know, even at this time in life, where life is going to take you, you know, because we've been actors for so long and we figure, you know, the, even shows we do on the stage come and go. But this house has been, has survived for what, 225 years. Yeah. And this house will hopefully survive for another 225 years. Right. Like you're saying, and we love when children come into the house yeah. because they put their cell phones down. There's just a feeling in this little house that just captures you. It's like you feel that everything that has happened in this house is still there. You can feel it. You can feel the people almost. You can feel what goes on. I get goosebumps every time I say that. And But this one gal, um, she's a daughter of one of the long, long lived uh, families on the island. And she said, Louise, I just gotta tell you something. She said, you know what I, I, I think about the Hill House? It's it's not like you're looking at history. It's like you're standing in history. encourage you to take a moment to think about the historical places in your town, city, or state, and think of how they help to define the identity of your community for a stronger future. There are small, impactful actions you can take to preserve history every day, like visiting or donating to historical museums and national landmarks where you live, where you play. Take a minute to Google historical sites near me, and you might be surprised at all the history that surrounds you. If you're thinking about researching or preserving an older property, we recommend you start at your local historical society or town hall. They're there to help. We also have links to the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the National Register of Historic Landmarks in the show notes on our website. Both are a wealth of information, including details about historic tax credit programs. 
Impactually is created and produced in cooperation with Hum Productions. Our web address is hum, that's H-U-M-M, productions.com. Financial support for the show is provided by JLB Images and listeners like you who support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash impactually. We'd like to extend our sincerest thanks to our guests, Paul Brzezowski and Louisa Flanningham. You can find more information about them and the Timothy Hill House on our website. And to plan a visit, check out CaptainTimothyHillHouse.com. Additionally, we'd like to thank Professor Ted Karamansky of Loyola University in Chicago and the author of the book Schooner Passage, Sailing Ships and the Lake Michigan Frontier for his insights on the benefits of preservation from both the social and economic perspectives. Special thanks to Ben Travers and Michael Douse for providing their version of the American sailor folk song, Roll the Old Chariot Along, for this episode. It's part of their Shantyland project and is featured on their new EP titled Songs of the Lakes and Seas, Shanties, Forecastle Songs, and Other Seafaring Ballads. And we'll roll the old chariot along, we'll roll the old chariot along, we'll roll the old chariot along. We have a link to their website on our show notes, and their music is available on all major streaming platforms. And our team, Christine Murdoch, senior producer and editor, James Nash, director of operations and voiceover, Director of Production, Jack Bechtold. Sound Engineering by Andy Shoemaker. Music Curation by L. Lively of Crooked Tree Creative. Richard Cassis of Spark Inc. for digital artwork and branding. Andrew Sachs for our original music. And I'm Brooke Bechtold, Executive Producer and Host. Subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it as it helps others find us too. We would love to hear from you, so send us an email or find us on social media. Pitch us ideas about people who you think would be great to have on our show. Maybe it's even you. We'll be back soon with another extraordinary episode. Everyone has a story. Share. 